the bigger problem that we have with plastics are the toxins. There's a lot of research that's interested in understanding the risks for lower sperm count or worse reproductive function related to plastic exposure. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of the Earthlings podcast, where we talk about the big issues facing humanity in the 21st century. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Roseland. I'm a writer and I'm a policy analyst in the energy industry. And I'm your other co-host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I help companies in the energy transition with Technica Communications and support all genders and their careers in these industries with women in clean tech and sustainability. And today we are going to talk about something that is a ubiquitous feature in our modern world and it can be found everywhere. I guarantee you can just reach right out now and touch something made from this material and It's something that we as a society get to evolve beyond. I've got one word for you, Lisa Ann. Plastics. Plastics. (laughs) Okay, we think it's funny. Um. (laughs) Oh, yes. If I only knew how big plastics would have been in the 1960s, I could have invested and made millions. Billions. We're going to take a different angle on this today, aren't we, Lisa Ann? Yes, because it's not just about the pollution, and that is a big problem, but it's what happens when that pollution is broken down into teeny tiny particles and gets into our bodies. Yep. But first, some context on plastics. You know, we've had plastics for a while, since maybe the late 19th century, but they weren't used in a lot of things. They were really used in a narrow range of products and things that were fairly durable. But after World War II, everything changed. We started getting plastics in a wider and wider range of goods consumer goods, including a lot of stuff we just use once and then toss. Right now, we human beings make 300 million tons of plastic each year, tons. And half of that is single-use plastic. We use it once and we throw it away. Wait, whoa, whoa, record scratch. 150 million tons of plastic each year is designed specifically to be thrown away. Yep. And let's talk about this thrown away business. As my mother likes to say, There is no away. There is no magical place that this all goes to and disappears. It goes into our environment. Yep. And it's everywhere, right? It starts in the, it can get into the ground, or if it is is not properly disposed of, it's washed into streams and rivers, and then eventually can make it into the ocean. And that's one of the reasons why we have these huge garbage patches in every single one of our oceans, plus two in the Pacific Ocean, where all of this plastic garbage is collected and coalesces into these big masses the size of Texas. Yep. And that's just the visible stuff. There's all these plastic particles too small to be seen, the nanoplastics. Oh, yeah. So what are we talking, like 0.0001 millimeters or smaller? Yep. So for reference, that can be as small as about 1 50th of the width of a human hair. Oh, my God. I'm looking at my one single hair right now, and that's just, okay, that's inconceivably small, but more illustrative. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, these microplastics have been found everywhere, by the way, including in Antarctica. That's right. Oh, the Marianas Trench, too. Yep. And in plastic rain. Scientists have found tiny microscopic plastic particles raining down in the Pyrenees Mountains, 4,500 feet above sea level. Oh, gosh. That means the plastic was so small that it evaporated. And then human excrement, I read, stool samples across Europe, every single one of them had plastic in it. Yep. And I think that that's an important thing. Just because these 
plastic particles can be so small that they're invisible doesn't mean that they don't have effects. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, and research is really only just starting to get a handle on just what those effects are. But if you think about it, they suspect that we consume about five grams of plastic particles every week. That's about the same size as the weight of a credit card. So think about that. Eating a credit card amount of plastic every single week. And then, of course, this plastic can get into our food system and to our bodies in a variety of ways, right? Packaging waste, seafood, uh, drinking water. It's pretty mind-boggling how many different ways it can get into our bodies. But once it's there, it can affect our gut microbiome composition. And researchers and, and doctors and scientists are only now starting to discover how important our gut flora is to our entire body system. So uh, a lot of the precursors to your hormones and your endocrine system, neurotransmitters, all of these things start in the gut. So if your gut isn't healthy, it kind of sets off a chain reaction down the line. Um, and, you know, they're calling the gut the, your second brain. So just think about how important it is to have a healthy gut microbiome and then, and then having something like microplastics, as ubiquitous as they are, affecting that. Well, yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons the plastic pollution is a serious environmental problem and not the aesthetic concern for rich white people that it's sometimes passed off as. Mm-hmm. Actually, though, there is one rich white person who is taking action on this. Uh, he did this in fall of 2022. Mike Bloomberg announced an $85 million Beyond Petrochemicals campaign. It's uh, taking aim at the oil industry as well as plastic manufacturers. And his whole goal here is to block the construction of 120 planned new petrochemical projects. And Christian, you might remember the Beyond Coal campaign. This is modeled after the success of that. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, it can't come too soon because the global south is choking in plastic. And a lot of that plastic is exported as garbage from the United States and other wealthy nations. And so our first speaker is a journalist in Kenya who's been documenting the plastic pollution crisis in her country. She's also an internationally recognized environmental activist and social entrepreneur who, among other things, was named by the United Nations as a land hero for combating deforestation through her PA tree initiative that planted over 10,000 trees as of 2020. My name is Patricia Mumbua Kombo from Kenya. Plastic is a menace in Kenya. You walk, you find, you find plastics littering everywhere. When you go to the dump site, 70% of the waste in the dump site is single-use plastics. And on river banks, you find a lot of rivers are now clogged. You go to the ocean, you find plastics. And it gave me like an insight in my heart. You talk about the production processes. and. How is this plastic getting from the production to the environment in Kenya? What are the sources of the plastic waste and how are they getting there? If you look at statistics, Africa is one of least plastic producers. A lot of companies which are producing these, these plastics come from abroad. And the reason why I say Africa is disproportionately affected or rather impacted because unregulated plastics or other plastics that contain toxins, that contain chemicals, 
they find their way in Africa in the name of recycling, which is a false solution. It's a form of greenwashing where electronic waste, plastics, they are dumped in Africa. And the notion between that is we are helping you, we are bringing them for repair, we are bringing them, we will help in recycling. So you find Africa has stand to be a big dumping site of plastic from manufacturers, from other countries. And because our people in Africa do not understand the dangers, you find they openly accept. And I'll give you a scenario. If you look earlier on my Twitter, there was an hashtag that we were doing, Africa is not a dumpster. And this was after New York Times did an export say, whereby American Chemistry Council, they had a hidden trade deal with my country, Kenya, to have the ban on plastic. We, we have a, we've banned plastic in the single-use polythene bags. But the trade deal, which was exposed by New York Times, it was requesting Kenya to lift the ban so that plastics can find their way in Kenya. And once they're in Kenya, because our borders are porous, it will extend to East Africa, then from East Africa to the whole of Africa. And only a fraction of plastics that are recycled are then reused into other materials, right? It's very expensive to do that. And the industry just makes more native plastic and and pushes the problem onto communities, first in the country of origin. And then we ship that trash, basically, to other countries, like uh, countries in Africa, like Kenya, where you are. Uh, We used to ship it to China. And then China decided that, well, it, that they weren't going to take it anymore, right? Yes, yes. It's this big, big problem that nobody wants to look at. And, you know, frankly, municipalities have other problems. And I can understand why this is sort of falling through the cracks. And it's not, it's not right. How would you suggest we fix this? Okay. Based on the interaction and the work that I've done, The reason why Africa is a dumping ground is because perhaps we lack a global treaty to put and halt or rather to control plastic production. And also it goes back to our governments. If our governments are not open-minded to stand firm and say enough of enough, every country to deal with their plastic, then again, Africa will continue to be dumping ground. So with a global treaty, we will be able to control some of these menaces because the treaty will put out on the importation and exportation of plastics. And also it will hold manufacturers and countries responsible and accountable for their mess because Africa is impacted, yet it does not produce plastics. And again, it goes back to raising awareness. Because I can tell you for sure about 90% of communities and population do not understand the plastic menace. When we talk of plastic, what comes in the minds of people is the management system. It's like the management. People will hear plastic and they will like dumping, recycling, putting them, you know, you know, taking them into dumping sites. But the bigger problem that we have with plastics are the toxins. They are the chemicals that are used in the whole life cycle of production. So let's talk about that for a second. In your article in The Standard, you talked about persistent organic pollutants or POPs. What are POPs and why are they a health concern? 
Okay. When plastic go through incineration, this we have the persistent organic layer in plastics. And for example, in countries or in communities where people do not understand this, people burn litter, people are doing incineration, you know, incineration. And when these plastics are burned or plastics are used as form of fuel, it produces pops, some which are not pops like dioxins, pops are pops in, you know, in plastics. They are very harmful and actually they, they are in the face of being burned because of the dangers that they have. And communities are being informed or rather raised, they are being encouraged to avoid burning waste. And I'll take you a scenario through a research that was done by IPEN, a global partner with organization where I work. And it was to showcase reality how these pops or rather these dioxins enter the body. And what was done was using free range chickens because everyone eats egg. And in Kenya, they were done in three country, in three parts of the country, whereby we collected eggs from free range chicken in dumping sites, places where incineration occurs and also in electronic waste dismantling yards. And from the eggs, from the samples, we were able to find some of chemicals. We were testing for three chemicals or rather like additives, and they were present in, in eggs. This shows when a human being feeds on that egg, the chemicals or rather the additives, they are transferred to our bodies. And the worst thing about the pops, they stay in fatty tissues. When I consume an egg which is contaminated, the pops will be stored in my fatty tissues. And it's so bad for women because the pops are transferred, all other additives are transferred when a mother is breastfeeding the child. And this goes and the chain goes. Based on statistics, cancer issues have, are on rise in Kenya. And some are linked to some of these, some of these, you know, pop, some of these chemicals that are in plastics. We also have issues to do with growth. And 20 years ago, there was a big movement around heavy metals being found in people's bodies, especially women of childbearing age. And there was a big initiative to encourage women to get tested. And, you know, I had my hair follicles tested and my levels were like four times the normal level because I ate a lot of salmon. And in that case, you could just stop eating fish to reduce your heavy metal load. But when it comes to plastics, you can't avoid this. It's everywhere. It's in the air. It's in the water. It's in the earth. The chickens are are picking it up. I mean, I can see how it's a very overwhelming problem to solve. Yes. And when you talk of, it's not only chicken. The reason we use chicken is was just to showcase because chicken are found everywhere. I'm curious to know your assessment of the work that's been done at the national level and at the EU level, national level in various countries and at the EU level, such as the EU bans on disposable plastics. Do you think that these are important and meaningful or is there a better way? That's why we are pushing. At least we have a global treaty for plastic. Then from there, it will narrow down to the government and it will narrow down to civil society because with a treaty which is binding, even civil societies will have the right and confidence to question the government, to question you know, the practitioners based on that treaty. But without the treaty, it becomes even hard 
for civil societies and you know NGOs to really question the government because they will enact laws which will favor them. But a global treaty will be critical if governments are really into the idea and they really see the big picture. So what about, I don't want to say personal action, but movements. What about consumer movements to reject plastic? Do you see these as having an important role or are these just a waste of time and a distraction? As much as we are talking of consumers' awareness, we also need to make manufacturers accountable because some of the brands have already shifted to alternatives and people are really coping. So the issue is not giving consumer an extra task or rather blaming the consumer because consumer will consume what is available. If these manufacturing companies really come with alternatives, even consumers will be very selective. And again, an issue with consumers Yes, I will sort my waste. As a consumer, I will sort my waste in the household level. But when it goes to the garbage, you know, to the truck and to the dump site, the waste really gets mixed up. And, you know, this issue ensures plastics and all other waste, they do mix. But what we are trying to do in Kenya, we are training people on some of the most basic issues which they can refuse plastic. By like carrying hot pots when going to buy food at cafe instead of, you know, the plastic packaging, refusing single-use straws, and also carrying refillable waters. These are things that we are training people slowly to start appreciating. If people are aware of alternatives, people will switch. Like you can have milk ATMs whereby people will come and, you know, buy milk instead of having to package every time. We are not saying zero plastic production. Some plastics are very good, like some they store medicine, which are very good. But the issue is on regulating what toxics or the toxics that are used in and the chemicals that are used in plastics. I feel so honored and appreciative that Patricia took the time to speak with us and share insights into what people in the global north rarely realize. And it's that, you know, Africa has become this quote unquote away place that your mom was talking about, Christian, where plastics have been going to, especially since China has started declining to take our recycling waste. So we have fewer places to go, you know, shove it away. Yeah, and I can completely understand why Africans resent this. You know, but since we interviewed Patricia Combo, there's been action on a global plastic treaty. UN member states at the UN Environmental Assembly agreed to make a global treaty on plastic pollution. The resolution that they passed at a recent meeting establishes an intergovernmental negotiating committee, and it's going to start work this year to complete a draft of a global treaty with a legally binding agreement by the end of 2024. Yes, right. It's really exciting. It's cool that she's like, this is what we need. And now the UN is actively working on it. What they want to do with this is to address the full life cycle of plastics. And they also want to illustrate how we can design reusable and recyclable products and materials better. You know, this is progress, but like so many international treaties, this is on a depressingly slow timeline. And, you know, it doesn't really seem to reflect the urgency of the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, and on some level, you want your governments to move really slow. 
And then, you know, also governments are really good at responding to immediate threats, right? And so it's almost like the challenge with plastics is that the problem of how it affects our bodies is science that's still forming. Like we know it's bad. Uh, We just maybe don't know how bad or we're still discovering just how bad it is. So to figure out what we do know and what we don't know, we spoke with a scientist who studies children's health and development, including the links between neuroscience and environmental exposures in children's developments. Our next guest is also the author of a scientific review on nanoplastics in child health. My name is Cam Srapada, and I'm based at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, NTNU, in Trondheim, Norway. I'm a neuroscientist, and I'm the manager of the Center for Digital Life Norway, which is a national biotechnology center. So to get started, can you give us an overview of the main sources of plastic pollution in the environment? Sure. So there's a lot of different sources of microplastics. A lot of people are familiar with micro beads, you know, these beads that you find in your shower gel. But a lot of those so-called primary microplastics have been reduced or banned. Most of the microplastics that we find in our environment are broken down from bigger plastics. So, for example, they're, um, they're coming from synthetic fabrics that, uh, that slowly break off microplastic fibers as we use them. They come from car tires. They come from plastic packaging of foods and uh, building materials. So there's a lot of different sources of microplastics. Uh, in fact, the average car tire loses about three pounds over its lifetime just from normal wear and tear. And that ends up being millions of microplastic particles in our environment. And microplastics have been detected in um, a lot of different types of foods. Researchers have looked at uh, seafoods, fish, salt, honey, beer, as well as food contact materials, food packaging, drinking water, and in both indoor and outdoor air. From city air all the way up to remote mountain regions, we found microplastics in air. So when we think about microplastics and plastic in general, how is it getting into our human bodies? So that's a really good question. It's difficult to know because, uh, well, microplastics and nanoplastics, they're really small. uh, So it's kind of hard to trace them from uh, the outside to the inside of the body. But one of the biggest um, routes of exposure is through ingestion. So that's directly ingesting microplastic particles, obviously unintentionally. But uh, these can be microplastics that are coming from food packaging or from the air that lands on our food. For example, babies who are crawling around on the floor are, you know, crawling around and then putting their hand in their mouth and swallowing whatever kind of dust and microplastic particles fell on the floor over the course of the day. So children also unintentionally eat quite a bit of microplastic. As I said, we find microplastics in the air. So it's most likely that we are breathing in micro and nanoplastics. Some of them get caught in our in our nose. So they don't actually go all the way into our lungs, although they could cause an allergic reaction in the nose. Um, But some of the smaller pieces can actually go deeper into our lungs. And uh, children, of course, uh, many children drink breast milk. We think that's probably also a source of uh, exposure to plastic particles. And also we think that plastic particles will pass the placenta into the developing fetus. So the skin is a pretty good barrier. 
that's the the function of the skin. So it's uh, unlikely that a lot of microplastics pass through the skin. But of course, if they're open sores or children that have eczema where skin is uh, damaged, uh, there might be a greater possibility of entry there, especially for the smaller particles. And what about children's toys that are plastic? Is there a potential for uh, chemicals in the plastic to be absorbed directly through the skin? Well, plastic is made out of thousands and thousands of chemicals. Um, Some of them intentionally added for softness or flexibility by the manufacturer and some unintentional byproducts. So actually, plastics manufacturers don't even know all of the materials, all the compounds that are in their plastics. One type of chemical that's been researched quite a bit is a class of plastic chemicals called phthalates that's been linked to hormone disruption and a number of other health problems. Phthalates make plastic soft. So, you know, your your computer cables typically have phthalates. Edges of, of plastic surfaces have phthalates so that you don't cut yourself on the rough edge of a plastic. And that's why phthalates um, over many years were used in children's products so that uh, it took the rough the roughness out of the plastic. So if you've ever touched a children's toy and got that sort of oily feeling, that was um, most likely phthalates or other plastic chemicals uh, getting onto your skin. And you might notice that the oiliness disappears after a couple minutes, and that's because it's being absorbed into your skin. About that is that um, certain types of phthalates, these plasticizers, plastic softeners, have been banned in some um, children's items in a number of countries. So that's a a small victory, I would say. Wow, that's dark. And I'm suddenly really glad that I insisted upon wooden toys for my kid. So in in broad strokes, can you talk about what plastic does to the human body when it gets inside it and what these chemicals like phthalates do? So um, I will focus a little bit on microplastics. So when we, I mentioned that it's quite difficult to study uh, microplastics. But we think that microplastics probably interact with the the human body in a number of ways. So, you know, when we breathe in uh, microplastics, they potentially can deposit and cause inflammatory reactions if they're uh, present in large numbers in sensitive areas, for example, um, deep in the lungs. They can also potentially pass through biological barriers because they're so small, uh, the placenta being an, an example of that. And microplastics can also carry chemical mixtures with them. I mentioned that plastics are made out of thousands of chemicals. And when you have just a tiny little plastic particle, it still has many, many chemical compounds in it that it's carrying. And when you have microplastics coming from, say, an outdoor environment, let's say a small microplastic fragment from a tire, you know, the tires are moving on the road and they're getting eroded on the asphalt. So you have all these Uh, plastic and rubber particles that are coming off of tires all the time. And as they're sort of, you know, getting picked up by the wind and blowing through the air, they pick up uh, car exhaust and and other chemicals that are in our air. So microplastics can carry those known toxic chemicals with them as well. Plastic can also contain um, pigments, colorants, antifungal chemicals, and, and chemicals that are known to be hormone disruptors. So we don't know the dose that microplastics can bring of those chemicals, but it's a huge chemical cocktail that they're most likely bringing. Yeah, that's um, both fascinating and disheartening, I would say, partially because it feels like the experience one has when they hear that or when I hear that is a sense of sort of like not having any control 
over the experience because plastics are everywhere. They're so ubiquitous. They're totally ubiquitous. Yep. So how long have scientists been been studying the impacts of plastic on human beings and, and what do we know so far? So people have been studying plastics, um, plastic chemicals for a pretty long time. Uh, for example, back in the 70s, um, uh, some doctors and scientists uh, started noticing something called the meat wrappers asthma. So that was, uh, you know, people that were um, working in a grocery store or working in a factory and they were wrapping meat products with um, PVC plastic wrapper. They would use a hot wire to cut through the plastic to um, to wrap the product. And uh, some of these people started complaining about respiratory symptoms, um, irritation. And, and that started getting uh, scientists wondering, you know, is there a certain compound in this plastic that might be causing that irritation. Um, so research on compounds like PVC, which is still commonly used in flooring around the world, uh, has been going on for over 50 years. Many people are aware of uh, bisphenol A, BPA, that, uh, that kind of rose to prominence in the last uh, 20 years or so as an endocrine disruptor. So those are plastic chemicals that have been researched quite a bit, as well as phthalates, the plastic softener. Um, microplastics, which are uh, not plastic chemicals per se, but plastic particles, they're a lot more difficult to study because they're tiny and they're very diverse. So you have microplastic beads, like microbeads in your, uh, you know, in your shower gel, but you also have little fragments. You have fibers that are coming off of your clothes. Uh, you have different shapes, different colors, different types of plastic that they're made out of. So there's this huge, huge variety of microplastics that makes it really hard to study if one of them is uh, is toxic or the other one is toxic or what makes it more toxic. So um, research on microplastics, you can trace back to, um, you know, a few studies in the 90s, but the research has really increased uh, in the last, say, five to 10 years. So we've been mentioning um, endocrine disruptors and hormonal disruptors quite a bit here. What does this mean in terms of health effects for a human being to have your endocrine system disrupted or a health or your uh, hormones? And particularly, what does this mean for uh, babies and children and developing human beings? So our body is uh, dependent on our hormone system working in balance. So we need hormones for our metabolism, our digestion, use of, of resources inside the body. Um, there's hormones that are involved in, in brain processes as well. And in particular, when children are uh, developing in utero, there's a, a critical development period of quite a few different systems, the neurobehavioral system, the immune system, metabolic system, the heart, the lungs. Um, and when these chemicals are reaching a child, uh, a fetus developing, they can, you know, steer these developmental trajectories off course. I think I can say that another way by saying that in utero development has certain uh, pathways of healthy development for our organ systems, our brain, our hormones. And when these external factors change or push off track those developmental trajectories, that can lead to, to health effects. And sometimes it takes many years for us to know what the health effects of those environmental exposures might be. So would it be fair to say that we're talking about a wide range of potential negative health effects and developmental effects here? Yes. 
Okay. Any that jump out as particularly problematic or particularly high risk? So one of the most important functions of hormones in the body is development of our our reproductive system. Um, So that in men can refer to um, semen quality and sperm count. And when endocrine disruptors like certain plastic chemicals are absorbed into the body, there's a lot of research that's interested in understanding the risks for lower sperm count or worse uh, reproductive function related to plastic exposure. It's a little bit hard to know how much of that is linked to our exposure to microplastics, you know, these the tiniest particles, and how much is related to our exposure to plastics in general, how much we are touching um, plastic bottles, plastic packaging. But uh, we are constantly exposed to a cocktail of plastic chemicals in our environment. That's thousands of different compounds, uh, and some of which are hormone disruptors. Wait a minute. Plastic makes you shoot blanks? I mean, maybe this is how we get men to finally pay attention to plastic pollution. Unless they wanted to take the cynical view and consider plastic poisoning a way of, um, like a substitute for a vasectomy. I mean, clearly there's a lot that we do know about this very slow poisoning that plastic is doing to our bodies, but there's also a lot of stuff we don't know and that we really need more studies. Yeah, but I I feel like we know enough that we need to do something about it. And the question becomes what? You know, we've talked about policy action and there are various efforts underway. We mentioned earlier the EU's ban on disposable plastic. China banned plastic shopping bags and it's implementing more bans on disposable plastic in, I think, three phases. India banned shopping plastic bags already. They clog drains and sewers. And so they actually make it a public health problem in many of India's large cities. But they started their big ban on single-use plastics in July of this year, starting with 19 items that are considered to be not necessary, but have a big likelihood to become litter. And this ban is pretty broad-reaching. It bans the production, importation, use, and sale of these items. And other major economies are also banning these plastics. I mean, in the United States, there's couple city limited or even some limited statewide bans. Uh, also federal bans, the interior, the Department of the Interior has banned single-use plastics in national parks, wildlife refuges, and um, other public lands. But unfortunately, uh, the, <laughs> the, the total ban in its entirety uh, wouldn't be in effect until 2032. 2032? Did I hear you correctly? We're going to, oh, this is a big problem. We need to do something about it 11 years from now. Give me a break. I mean, obviously, these slow, inconsistent bans are not going to get us where we need to be. No, I think we need to ultimately think more holistically about this problem. And we need to start envisioning a world beyond disposable plastics and all kinds of things. And, you know, I think this really comes back to design. This comes back to what we prioritize when we design things and make them and what we decide is unimportant. And that's why we tracked down someone who thinks deeply about design and specifically how we as humans can mimic nature in the things that we design. She broke down the thinking around plastics in a new way for us, specifically how the fashion industry is a problematic source of plastic pollution and how we could rethink how we design our clothes.
Beth Ratner. I am the executive director of the Biomimicry Institute, and I hail from Mill Valley, California. You have to remember that this is such a dispersed problem. And think about DDT for a second, right? This is a toxic chemical that was banned 20 plus years ago. We're still finding it in, in the blood of a polar bear 3,000 miles away. Nature disperses. And it's a, it's a beautiful system when everything is designed to be a coherent materials palette, for lack of a better phrase. So nature absolutely downcycles. It doesn't always upcycle, right? So it wants things to decompose and it can happen here like that. You know, the flower can decompose here on my front lawn or if I take it someplace, you know, a thousand miles away, it can decompose there. Same benefit's going to happen. We haven't designed for that kind of breakdown of materials. And yet they are breaking down anyway, because that's, that's physics. That's thermodynamics. Things will break down and things will disperse. Entropy happens. And all of our systems, especially sometimes when we talk about in the circular economy that we will just, if we just take it back, if we just take it back, if we keep things in a tight loop, then they will, and we can be fine. We can produce as much as we want. That's not entirely accurate, right? Because things will always escape the loops. We call it leaky loops. You can design for that, that constant, that, that pair of yoga pants to come back and back and back. But every time they shed and every time they shed, we haven't designed for what happens to those fibers. You represent the Biomimicry Institute and um, you have this new initiative called Decomposition for Design. What does that mean? Sure. Design for decomposition is this idea that what I was saying a little bit before, which is, so let's go back to these, like the numbers, because the numbers are pretty terrifying. So we, we make more than we buy. We throw away half of it. So we're at this place right now where 100 billion garments a year are being made for a planet that has about seven and a half billion people. And I promise you, not all seven and a half billion people are buying new clothes every month, much less every year. And so we have this massive overproduction problem. In the course of that overproduction problem, again, about half of it never even makes its way to a shelf. And if it does make its way to a shelf, you're, you, you're quick to either then dispose of it, send it to a thrift store, et cetera. Like far and away, what happens to clothing when you're done with it is it ends up in a landfill. Even accounting for exports to, to the global south, even accounting for recycling, Far and away, 65, 70% is ending up in a landfill. A small percentage is going to recycling. A small percentage is going toward waste to energy. We all think we're doing this really great thing, right? We, we've cleaned out our closets. We've gone through our Marie Kondo moment. And we've, we've taken it to the thrift stores, like I said, who are, they're swamped. And so they have two options. Number one is either I pay, have it disposed of, or for a dollar, a bale. And a bale is a huge, like, let's say, almost 50, 60 pound massive amount of clothing that's been bailed up. They'll sell it for a, a dollar or less than $5 to an exporter. The exporter then takes it to Ghana or to India or to Malaysia or Chile, and they sell it for $400. So the exporter is making quite a bit of money in this process. And those people then are then hoping that they can sell it locally. But in Ghana, in Kantamanta Market, which is in this sort of Southern port city in, in Ghana, they're getting 15 million garments every week. The scale of the problem is there are just literally just mountains, mountains of clothing of people who, and they don't know what to do with it. So 
the scale of the problem is visually overwhelming, but more importantly, it's crushing. It's like, it's, it's literally crushing these people who were trying to make something good out of this resale market, but they can't possibly keep up. So what do we do about this? What is the solution? What, can, yeah. what, can the, what would a fashion industry look like if that, it functioned as an ecosystem? That's great. That is the, that is the question. And that was what we were starting to get at. So if we were originally to design everything for decomposition. So here, let's, let's take an example for a second. There is, there are, if you've been hearing about mycelium, has how mycelium can eat different materials and transform. So you can, you can end up with a mycelium brick that you could use for building material or a mycelium insulation panel or uh, packaging, et cetera. Most of the time, mycelium eats like uh, agricultural waste. You take a bunch of ag waste, you inoculate it with spores, you put it into a form that you want it to be, you put it in the closet for three weeks, boom, you've got like Dell packaging. You can also do more with mycelium stuff that's where you train the mycelium to actually eat plastic. So one of the concepts, so we're, when we look at decomposition technologies, we're looking at enzymes, methanotrophic bacteria, bacteria that will eat methane and then turn it into new proteins. But we're also talking about things like mycelium. So there's a company called Biome, for instance, out of the UK. Imagine if all of the discarded material that isn't going to have a second life doesn't want to end up in landfill. Mycelium brick company or insulation company says, I'll take that. I'll take it for free. Waste management company is happy to give it to them. They go ahead and then start new businesses. Now, all of a sudden, we have like a, a pathway for all this material and not just one, but imagine there's a series of new kind of entrepreneurs who are taking this fashion waste and turning it into something that ultimately is biocompatible. The magic of mycelium is that it's, it's like, it's literally doing alchemy. Like it's transforming materials back into something that can be, that can be biodegradable in the end. Yeah. I have a, I'm a big fan of fungi, mycelium, mushrooms, so I think it's a really magical type of network, right? Because it's, it's, it's this fungal threads and a lot of it grows underground. People don't even understand like the health of a forest is really built on the mycelium that's below. And Wait a minute. What is the mycelium for those fun, people who don't know? Okay. So, but it's not like the mushrooms you get in the store. You're talking about the network. Can, let's define mycelium for our listeners. Yeah, it's the underground network of pathways of the way that the fungus grows underground. And then the mushrooms that you see are just the above ground portions of it. The, but I'm the sure fruiting, they're called fruiting. the fruiting bodies. Exactly. Right. Um, so you're basically talking about like super mushrooms that eat waste clothing. That is honestly on the horizon. So right now, and, and enzymes that will eat waste clothing and bacteria that will eat waste clothing and actually a number of other mechanisms for doing this. The real key here is that we design differently, right? We should be designing our fibers without the toxic chemicals to begin with. We should be designing them to be, have all the same performance characteristics that we want. You know, it should be easy to wash. It should be durable, et cetera. But you, we can be making new kinds of clothing. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about this designing, you know, other kinds of fibers. You know, personally, I'm a huge wool fan. I love wool. Not everybody likes wool. You know, it can be scratchy. Sure. Uh, some people are allergic to wool. But what yeah. is what is a fiber and fashion industry 
that isn't reliant on plastic inputs and doesn't discard them en masse look like on a practical sense? How would it, in practical terms, how would it be different than the one we have today? It would be exactly what our grandparents wore, for starters. It exists, right? It's not. I don't know if I'm ready for the top hat. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like corsets. I look great in corsets, but. It's it's very much. Your grandma didn't wear corsets. You're not that old. Um, There's. I think that's the funny part, like back to this being, this is a 1970s and onward kind of a shift. And really probably even a little bit after that, most fibers were natural fiber materials. They were cotton, they were flax, they were, you know, the, like I said, linen and wool, certainly. And there's so much high performance value. Funny enough, there's a, there's this anecdotal story about the, um, in England, I don't remember what division of the, of the military it was, but they had these very starchy cotton shirts and there was actually very little starch in them. It's just that the weave was incredibly tight and thick. And in doing so, just by having a pretty complicated weave that made the shirts kind of like thick and they felt starchy, but they were actually just like thick. They repelled water by themselves. They didn't actually have to spray on perfluorinated chemicals to, to achieve any kind of hydrophobicity or something. We forget that the way that nature does things is it uses structure. So the structure of how you weave, the structure of how a, a leaf has bumps and ridges that's how nature does everything. And that's what the reason why biomimicry is part of this big fashion project is exactly that, which is we're trying to show, show that there are new structures that we can be using, be enhancing existing natural materials. Hemp, for instance, is a really great one. And we can be getting the same kind of performance qualities that we're all, that we've all come to expect. And the, the, the mixture of different types of fiber uh, will will be part of that the different kinds of weaves the different kind of processing so it's it's very uh, let me let me just add one thing uh fiber shed fantastic organization here out of marin they said so you can take existing farmland and instead of just growing one crop you could intercrop so you could grow hemp and you could grow uh, vegetables and you could grow maybe even um some food for the for the the sheep that will then graze and you can have a mixture of animals also on the property. We, if we just took all of the existing farmland today and intercropped and also had animals, again, appropriate animals like, like sheep in the right spots, we could actually grow all the fiber we need for about 23 billion garments a year, just in the United States. So again, if we're producing 100 billion a year internationally, if the U.S. could do 23 billion, that'd be pretty phenomenal and just use it. And it would regenerate the soil. It would pull down carbon. It would have, it would provide local livelihoods. You're talking about a systemic change that's possible when we start to value the soil again. And we put all of these other requirements in place. We're not going to pollute with plastic anymore. We're not going to use toxic chemicals anymore. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to hit our biodiversity targets. If that's the design assignment and you're having all of these or criteria simultaneously, the only answer that makes a ton of sense is saving our soil. And if we start with that first, then we can talk about rebuilding a new system. So the hope when I go back to my my mycelium brick company, or even if we do have to take some like the nastiest raincoats that are coated in chemicals, and we turn that into um, a pyrolysis that 
yields like a biochar. Biochar is a really great way to to bring life back to the soil. Inoculate that biochar with some mycelium and some algae, and you've got yourself like a a thriving soil base again. That's really what we're trying to do. Like, so how do we take this pile, change its form, bring back healthy new regenerative systems? That's the goal. So I, this is all really, really fascinating. I'm curious to know, how do we start to implement this? Is it going to yeah. be government requirements? Because I already hear that we're having problems with recycling just other commodities like glass, aluminum, and that whole economy is really suffering. Uh, and the business model is falling apart. So where do we get started with this? Um, government sure, absolutely plays a big role here. And California is going to start. California and Europe often are in lockstep. And one of the first things you're going to start to see here is, is what's called extended producer responsibility. We're going to start to require that if a company wants to sell its, its stuff in this state, they are going to have to pay in order for ultimately for a take back system to be put into place. And there will be new rules around restricted materials of what's going to be allowed to be sold and what's not. And that alone. So government has to be the stick, but you also need a carrot in here. Like you need something that that's also going to shift. And I think for consumers, it's going to be what kind of personal health do I want? People are going to start to know, just like we know what's in our food now, like we, we understand what organic labels mean for our health. We're going to start to know this about our, our, our fibers too. People will start reading labels differently. And I think as an individual, you can start by looking for natural fibers to, and if you can't do it all natural, you can, you can buy the the ten cells and the and rayons. You can buy other man-made cellulosics. I think man-made cellulosic is better than man-made man-made uh, synthetic. It, it's a it's a progression, right? You ultimately we want everybody to be um, we want to be able to create really healthy materials that value soil based systems. But in between there, there are there are these other systems where we can take. Um, we can do something with agricultural waste. We can turn those into new fibers. So I did not have giant plastic eating mushrooms on my bingo card. I don't know about you. <laughs> Damn it. I could have been a winner. Wow, that was that was kind of mind blowing. I and you know you know me, I love mushrooms in all their forms, and so to hear of them eating plastic is just so delightful for me. That that is a a future I want to see. Yeah, um, and it's it's just one one illustration of of these various solutions that we're going to discover in science that you know can be very low tech. Yeah, and I love the way that Beth brings it back to design because to me this this can be seen as a design problem. We need to design for reuse and we need to design for decomposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not something that the markets are going to do on their own, right? So I think we get a chance to, as a society, sort of influence uh, companies to design for decomposition. And if everybody, if, if we require everyone to do it, then they'll do it. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I would, I would agree that design reflects social values, but I think there's still a lot of big questions about how you get from point A to point B here. Well, yeah, exactly. We're going to have a lot of labeling going on, I can see in this future. But, you know, it starts with understanding the problem, right? If for no other reason than human health, we need to start eliminating plastics, starting with those that are the least necessary and the most harmful, those that are getting into our bodies and causing health problems. 
Mm-hmm. So to sum it up, Christian, you're saying we have plastic in our diet and we need to go on a plastic diet. <laughs> yeah, you, you could say that. Um, but we have to do so quickly as well. Similar to climate, this is a disaster that's already gotten a bit ahead of us. And, you know, we need to make big changes soon if we don't want to suffer worse effects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> climate change and now plastics reminds me of that, um, what is that, Austin Powers movie where he's in the hallway in the in the big base and there's like he's screaming because there's a steamroller coming at him and then the camera pans out and the steamroller is all the way down the hall but he doesn't run away he just stands there screaming (laughs) yeah that's kind of what I have I kind of feel like that's going on here yeah because you know I mean look we've seen how the world has reacted to climate change I mean it hasn't right so why should we believe that it's going to take this problem seriously. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like change can happen quickly when society starts to move. And, and I feel like for a long time, it seems like nothing's happening. And then a lot of times it will come like a wave. Yeah. And I mean, look, countries around the world, including nations in the global South, are making big moves to ban single-use plastics. And, you know, these plastic bans, these aren't just about keeping them out of the landfills. This isn't just because of litter or trash management. It's because these plastics decompose in the water, the soil, and our food, and are getting into our bodies. And you can, but you can just touch plastic, and apparently it's absorbed into your skin. So, you know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, there's no way to absolutely avoid plastic. And some plastics are useful. Certainly. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if, like, you can tell I'm a little skeptical about all this plastic production stuff. And I really do hope it happens. But for me, it feels very improbable, um, nearly impossible. And I wonder if the way I'm feeling now about plastics is the way people might have thought, um, you know, 70 years ago at the concept of sw- switching away from fossil fuels because of this vague notion of, of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Well, you know me, I, I apply, I, I stick to Amory Lovin's concept of applied hope. And for me, I just come back to solutions exist. Now, that isn't saying all the solutions are the same. Clearly, as we've been pointing out, recycling will not get us there. And individual action alone also will not get us there. Yeah, we're going to have to start not producing certain kinds of plastics. And that means coming up with alternatives that work and requiring that they be used. And the Global Plastic Treaty is, is a, a, a movement in, in the right direction. Sure. Um, but there's also bottom-up action. Because one of the things that guides me as someone trying to make change in my world, in my community, is that action begets action. This is, this is a principle that I follow. And, and I've seen this work, whether it's people, you know, one person gets solar on their home and then their neighbor gets solar. Studies have shown that this tends to happen in clusters. Or one state passes a renewable energy mandate and then the states around them decide to follow suit. And so in that way, if we think about individual action versus political change, I feel like a lot of times this is presented as this sort of false dichotomy, where it's either like individual action versus larger political change. But, you know, these big national laws and the law in the EU, they didn't start that way. They didn't just come out of nowhere. They started with local action and with the building of political momentum, including through people making choices in their lives, because that's how a lot of people can, this, that's how a lot of people react to this. That's how a lot of people find a way to engage with these things. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because, I mean, action is the best way to relieve anxiety yeah. about anything, right? Just to be in action doesn't even sometimes matter what you're doing as long as you're moving forward. Right. And all these little changes, like you say, bubble up into into larger movements. Yeah. And th- there are scaling issues. But, you know, one of the things I really I, I, I come back to is this is a lot of opportunity as well, just like climate. There's a lot. There are so many roles for different people to play in tackling this crisis. You know, we have the scientists and the journalists who we've been talking to that can help us understand the problem. But there's also the designers and engineers who we're going to need to make the products of tomorrow on different principles than the way that we designed products in the 20th century. And then there's the lobbyists and policymakers and influencers who are going to get a chance to deal with the petrochemical industry on this one. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm not not saying this is going to be easy. Certainly not. No. I think, yeah, because they're looking, that entire industry is looking towards uh, plastics as, as a way of uh, adjusting their business model away from, you know, f- using fossil fuels for energy. Yeah, they are. And it's, it's scary. But I think that confronting this starts with vision. It starts with a vision of a different future. And I feel like the 21st century is a time when we can build a world where we still have our high-tech lives, but we surround ourselves and, and we design with materials and material usage that's evolved and intelligent and responsive to the environment. Mm-hmm. Simply because we know more, we have more information yeah. than we did previously. Uh, so, okay, I, I totally, I'm on board with your vision, Christian. I hope it happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I behind, I'm behind you. My, my skeptical Gen Xer moodiness is, is willing to go along with you on this applied hope journey into a world where microplastics and nanoplastics are not poisoning us and our children yeah and i have to say this is a great episode this is a first for us oh yes because this is our first all-female guest episode mm-hmm. yes exciting. so thank you christian for putting this one together for us my pleasure you know it's funny how so many women care about plastic pollution and on that note earthlings we will see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue green space flower remember Leadership starts with you and the world you want to see. 